Akashic Records, your galactic race soul family, those who guide you, those who protect you, past lives on Earth and elsewhere in the universe. Max 21D performs remote viewing during deactivating chips and codes or programming, raising the vibrations and healing this great planet. We are co-creating a better reality. You're listening to Wolf Spirit Radio. Thank you, everyone. This is Max Steele. I want to thank everybody in the chat room for being here and the people around the world. Thank you for being here. And uh, and remember, this is a self-listener-supported station. Please donate. We're trying our best to get the information out to you, the real stories about everything around the world where you're kept in the blind. So now we're bringing back our guests. But before that, I have to say thank you, Jennifer Martin, my wife, Nicole, Vanessa, you all, and Russ, my producer. Thank you all for being here. Take it away, Stephen. Well, Max, I'd like to thank you for having me on the program again. I'd like to thank your co-hosts, Jen Martin, Nicole, Vanessa, Russ, and to all of the Wolf Pack out there who are tuning into this broadcast via the chat room. So I thank you all again for giving me this opportunity. Tonight, I would like to start by discussing uh, some information that I was waiting to get. And it was an uh, interesting story with it. And I'm going to segue with the story and then I'll, I'll go into what it was that somebody didn't want me to uh, read. And in March of 2018, I ordered a book from Barnes & Noble. The book was entitled Anunnaki, Gods No More, written by a Sasha Lesson. Now, Sasha Lesson was a, uh, a disciple of Zachariah Sitchin. He spent many years as an understudy and Zachariah Sitchin asked him to, uh, to write this story about our civilization based on uh, Zachariah's knowledge of what he had discovered in the Sumerian tablets. And he, he did so. So I was waiting for this book. And um, I expected the delivery date was on March 19th. I was supposed to get the book on my birthday. So book didn't come. So a couple of weeks later, I decided to contact Barnes & Noble about the book. And even though I had a tracking number, no one was able to tell me what happened to the book. So I said, all right, I'll just reorder the book. And I told the customer service representative that I would pick up the book at a specific location in New York City at the store. About three days later, I get a call from the bookstore telling me that your book is here. You know, come pick up your book at the counter. So I was eager to pick it up. So the following day, I headed into the city, into the Barnes & Noble location to pick up the book. Once in the store, I told the book a cashier at the counter that I was there to pick up my book. And they turned around and they looked at the pickup area and they said, well, your book's not here. I go, well, I was just told, you know, yesterday that the book was here. So I, like, I said, I'd like to speak to a manager. So they summoned the manager and the manager and I went and spoke. He says, well, let's go look on the second floor. Maybe somebody put the book back on the shelf. 
So as we're looking on the second floor for the book, he was talking to one of the clerks there on the, on the second floor and asked them if they knew where the book was. And one of the clerks said, oh, I know exactly where the book is. It's in so-and-so's office. He said, so-and-so's office. So someone had deliberately taken the book off the pickup area, so I couldn't get it. I said, well, all I know is I want my book. So they apologized to me and got me the book. And I realized what was in this book that was so important that someone didn't want me to read it. Because I had read all of Zachariah Sitchin's books, and I had listened to a lot of Sasha Lesson's uh, audio recordings on AquariumRadio.com. And I was very familiar with, you know, the topic of studying it for a number of years. So I uh, said, well, let me read the book from cover to cover and find out what it is that I'm supposed to learn. And for those of you who don't know, the topic was um, Anunnaki Gods No More, written by, as I mentioned, author Sasha Lesson. He was a Ph.D. in UCLA of anthropology and, uh, as I mentioned, a student of uh, Zachariah Sitchin. And he studied with him for many years. And as I said, he, he helped, uh, Sitchin helped Lesson to disseminate articles and graphics and traditional stories of ETs who were considered mythic gods on Earth from around the year 450,000 years ago to 300,000 years ago. And they came from a planet which is called Nibiru to mine for gold to shield their planet. So here, here's what Zachariah Sitchin says. Zachariah Sitchin says in his translated clay tablets that statue bases and monuments were created by scribes in ancient Sumer, which is now Iraq. And the inscriptions describe how extraterrestrial gods created and conditioned us. Sumerian scribe pressed on stamp writing called cuneiform into clay tablets. The tablets show the Sumerian's version of our solar system's history for the last 4.5 billion years. 300,000 years ago, the tablets described the ETs had added their genes onto Homo erectus to create earthling slaves. And these were the original black workers that they had working in the mines. So for from 300,000 years ago, they used uh, the uh, hominoids creating a, a slave just to do the mining work. And these were the African workers that they used. At around 13,000 years ago, on the, on the ET's planet, Nibiru, nearing Earth, the Antarctic ice sheet slid into the South Sea and caused the big flood, the deluge. So the ETs let most of the hybrid Earthlings drown. The ETs also used nuclear weapons to nuke Sodom and Gomorrah in the year 2024 BC and decimated the earthlings of Sumer with radiation. So this is the reason for the no more information on the Sumerian culture because they were in a nuclear a cataclysmic event and they all died from the radiation. The Nibirans with these advanced weaponry and biological pathogens murdered hundreds of thousands of earthlings because of their, their warring ways. <coughs> the, the ETs whom the scribes call gods, and these are the Bible's Elohim, dictated the tablets and statue tags. The statues show the ETs that look like they were 7 to 12 feet tall and taller, and they resemble the Nordic race with space-age weapons. These so-called gods live millions of years on Earth, and it's said that 
an atmosphere crisis at 445,000 years ago on Nibiru drove them to Earth for gold. So they needed gold to shield their planet because their planet was not going to survive unless they were able to secure gold. <coughs> Excuse me. They, uh, they scripted us to obey males' rank and hierarchy. The disdain underlines and perpetrates violence. So they, they wanted us to follow a male rule, and they wanted us to obey blindly. 445,000 years ago, known by many names, example, Ea, Ptah, Bazar, Hephaestus, Vulcan, and Adonai was a Nibiru Sumerian called Enki. Enki rocketed to Earth with 50 men, 50 medics, 600 miners, and 300 astronauts and administrators following them. The expedition sought gold to refine to a monatomic white powder of gold and create a superconductive shield for Nibiru's decaying atmosphere. Sumerians named the Nibiruans the Anunnaki, which meant those who came from the sky. The Israelites called Nibiruans Anakim and Nephilim. Egyptians called the Nibiruans Neder or the Watchers. The Anunnaki found gold in Africa and, and South America. The Nibiruans mined and uh, they uh, had the work done by the uh, their workers, and they found the conditions to be harsh. And there was a uh, a strike, and Enki, who was the uh, our creator of uh, the Earthlings, he incited an African miner the miners to to strike, and they pressed his brother Enlil, who was also known as Yahweh, the Jewish god, and the expedition. A chief on earth to pardon the strikers. Now Enki then provided a solution that he would breed short-term mining slaves to replace the striking Nibiruans miners here on earth. So he decided he was going to make a mining slave. To make the miner slave, Enki added his genes, his sister Nimma's mitochondrial DNA and genes of Homo erectus. So it was through this combination he was able to create uh, an earthling. It was Inky's thought that the creator of all designed Erectus to evolve into Homo sapiens, but it would have taken a longer process to do so. So he was going to speed up the process. His son, Ningashida, was also a scientist. He and Ninma and Enki expedited the creation design. They made hybrid earthlings who could breed who were like Nibirans, though they had longer heads and bigger brains, he would make the earthlings to be shorter lives, smaller brains, and the the men, Enki gave them foreskin on the penis, which the Nibirans would lack. <coughs> uh, Enki then created the hybrids to be shorter, and most of the men were under six feet tall, and he, he, he showered them with, with shorter life t terms than the Nibirums would have. He, he, he only gave them the capacity to use 10% of their brain, so he cut off uh, half of the brain, so that way it couldn't you know, be uh, similar to the Nibirums. He, he, he didn't want them to, have, to be equal because then they could overthrow them at some point, so he had to be able to dumb them down, I guess, and, and that's what he did. Enki created our ancestors. He and the Nibirums on Earth, begat babies with each generation. So every time they created a new generation, he added his semen to it and he gave them an upgrade. 
So Nibirans trained us to, to mine for gold and copper, and we tended their crops, livestock, and took care of their mansions. And from 300,000 years ago until the Great Flood, millions tall for the ETs in South Africa. After the flood in 13,000 years ago, which we all know the story of Noah, which every country has their own version of it, expedition bosses had us call them gods. They made the earthlings build them temples, palaces, hangars, and cities in Sumer, Egypt, Mesoamerica, and South America as well. The Nibirans taught us astrology, astronomy, metallurgy, mathematics, architecture, herding, writing, architecture, geology, and also to support their cities and palaces. We built, we built the monuments as well. So the, the ETs, for the most part, owned and ruled us. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Commander Enlil, his descendants, whom Zachariah Sitchin called Enlilites, ruled the earthlings of Sumer and India. The chief scientist Enki, his descendants, who Sitchin called Enkiites, ruled the earthlings of Africa, Basara, they called Eden, and also the Persian Gulf of Bag Baghdad, which they called Babylon. The Enlilites and the Enkiites were putting their earthling armies against each other, plotting against each other, killing each other. And pushiest ones were the Enkiites, Babylon's god, which was Enki's son Marduk, was also known as Ra and Nimrod, and his dem demigod son Nabu raised columns in Canaan and sent earthlings' armies to wrestle the Sinai spaceport from the Enlilites. So they were fighting for a spaceport there. In the year 2020-23 BC, the Ammonites nuked the spaceport and the city south of the Dead Sea to keep the spaceport from the Enkiites. So Enlil did not want his brother and his son to be able to get that spaceport. So the fallout from the bomb spread to Enlil Sumer, and but not Marduk's Babylon. So Marduk was spared the destruction, and it turned out that the Sumerian people were the ones who all got nuked because of it. Babylon was saved by a north wind. So Sumer's Enlilites, you know, their gods fled, but their earthlings in Sumer died. Now what I hope to impart in this narrative is that the ETs bloodlines of hybrids still rule Earth, and they chain us to matrices of religion, war, and business. Their power hierarchies are dedicated to Enlil, also known as Yahweh, and Allah, also known as Marduk, compete to the death against each other for you know the control of our planet. And people will do bidding based on religion to these, these religions that they've set up from day one. Sumer's history warns us to cast off the God spell and mindset of the Nibirun genocidal commander Enlil and the matrix of religion and its false gods. So, you know, the commander Enlil, as I said, also known as Yahweh, the Jewish God, he left Earth in the year 2024 B.C. Marduk's Enki's son and, and Nanar, Enlil's son and daughter, Anana, they stayed here on Earth after the nuking of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they created cities in the interior of the Earth. And, and for my next part of this, I will talk about, you know, the inner Earth, but People have to understand that if we don't learn from the past, we'll be doomed to repeat it. So what we've got here is a, uh, a society created by uh, 
by a man who came here trying to expedite this mission to mine for gold. And when they got enough gold, they were going to leave the planet. So it was decided that let's just flood the planet and get rid of all the, uh, they call them Lulus, the slaves at that time, and then be done with it. But Enki, the scientist, had, he took a liking to the, the homonyms that he created because he liked breeding with them and up, upgrading their, uh, their lineage. So he decided that he was going to copulate with one of the women and created Zia Sudra, which is the biblical Noah that we know all about, who saved you know, humanity so that way we could continue to exist. So this is our early beginning to understand like who created us, how we got here, and what they've done. You have to understand this, but if you talk to any person who's of Jewish religion, they'll tell you that they will not utter the name of God, that it's forbidden for them to tell you the name of their God. I mean, if you read the books, you'll see it says Yahweh or Jehovah, but they won't tell you the name Enlil. But you can imagine every day people are saying, Jesus, will you help me? Jesus, save me. And yet the call, call goes unanswered. I wonder what happens when you say, Enlil, help me. Enlil, save me. Will, en will Enlil respond? Or if he does respond, is that why the Jews call themselves the chosen people? So if anybody would like to uh, respond to this, uh, now is your time. Okay, Stephen. Um, I was thinking about the Bible with um, Sodom and Gomorrah's story and Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. And what happened was they, they used you know, nuclear radiation, which dissolves everything. Um, there's so many things in the Bible that corroborate all that, but it's um, people who wrote the stories didn't understand the technology. And so, you know, they would give the simplistic uh, description of things um, like the ark was probably a submarine, you know, and, uh, and Noah was um, a collector of all the DNA from all the different species of animals. And that, that's what they had in the submarine uh, rather than, you know, physical animals in the ark. Um, it's kind of interesting to translate the Bible into kind of modern technology. Well, exactly. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, the people who lived at that time, they were not literate, they were not book smart, they were not learned, and they, they did what they were told. But if you look at the Bible, it, it is a, uh, it's a redaction. Later on, the Greeks went and modified it and changed it. But I'll give you one, for instance, Noah. After he, uh, he, he lands on the rock and, you know, he saves the, the world from, you know, after this deluge, he and his sons and his family, they set up their camp and he's hurting, he's, he, he's growing uh, fruit and he's got grapes and whatever. And he decides to make some wine. He gets drunk. And Noah's in his tent. He's drunk. Next thing you know, his youngest son goes to his other two sons, Japheth and Seth, and says, by the way, dad's in the tent. And he's nude. They're going like, what? So they go to see the father in the tent. They cover the father up and they back out of the tent because they don't like what they've seen. So now Noah wakes up and he finds out that he's been violated. Somebody drilled him in the booty. So when, they, when that happens, he comes out and he starts yelling and he, he summons all three sons. And he says to his youngest son, he goes, from this day forward, you'll have to service you know, your family as a result of what you did. So the three, the three kids, like they left for all different parts of the world, but here it is, the line of Canaan was incest, incestual, you know, incest there, 
and they screw their own father. And here it is in the Bible, and you read it. So I call up my cousin and say, Rich, you know, you're, uh, you're into the Bible. I said, tell me I'm wrong. He read it. He goes, son of a gun. He says, there's three Bibles I got. He goes, and everyone shares, you know, your findings. So I, so I said, go talk to your, 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 your pastor, your priest, or whoever, you know, your upline is, you know, you know use a lifeline. So he gets back to me. He says, they don't want to talk to me. You know, they're trying to say, well, it's not what it means. Says, well, that's what it says. So you realize that there's a lot of holes in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you realize if you really understand it, you realize that it's BS. And when you go against it, all of a sudden they put you on the list and they say, well, you know, uh, they get rid of that person because they're a thinker. You know, you're supposed to trust and believe blindly. Well, how can you believe blindly? But blatantly, it's in your face. And I, I did very well in, in reading comprehension. I said, wait a minute. Let me ask someone else the question. And when I posed the question, they said, you're right. This is exactly what it is. So when you have a people, when you have a race, Cain and Abel, where the one brother kills the other brother, and then God says, I'm going to put the mark you know, uh, on, on uh, Cain, which was to make him beardless, so that way he would roam the earth and they would be able to identify him. But he didn't roam the outer earth. He went into the inner earth. And uh, so here it is in the beginning, they talk about, you know, uh, the Garden of Eden, all the rivers, Jordan and all these rivers. And to find out that in the inner earth, they've got the same names of rivers, all the stories about the Hyperboreans, the giants of Saturn, and all these places that they talk about, the Greek myths and all that, all were not myths. They all originated in the hollows of the earth. So here it is. You don't know what to believe when you read it because there's no one coming up and saying, yeah, I can validate that. I can prove that because as soon as the messenger tries to expound on it or expand on it or embellish it, they kill the messenger. So this is what my first thought was that, gee, if the Anunnaki and their gods no more and they came here to do this, well, they created a system with the Sumerians, a capitalistic system that we haven't been able to, to, to eliminate. And if we don't learn how to get rid of it, then we're going to be doomed to, to be always stuck within it. So my idea tonight is to say, well, we know what we've had. You know, we know what the problem is, and we see what the reaction to the problem is. You know, the, the debtor is the slave to the lender, and we have to end this cycle. So what I'm here tonight is to say, everybody listening, Think about what one person can do to make a change, because if we start collectively now making a change, we'll realize that what is written doesn't happen to be true just because it's written and the ink is dry. It's probably a bald-faced lie, but you have to challenge it. Now, all these professors who are tenured are paid to stick with the curriculum, and Jen, you're a teacher. You know they give you a certain curriculum. If you don't teach that, you're out of a job. That's correct. I had a question for you on the um, stitching material. Did he ever talk about the Tower of, of Babel and why yeah. all the languages were changed? Yeah, I can tell you what he, what he said about that. What happened was Enlil, the Yahweh, the, uh, the Jewish God, was pissed off with Enki, his brother, for creating these humans. And after the flood, he said, no more of this shit. Now, if he was my French, he said, but... I'm going to confuse the languages. So he was the one, Enlil, created the, the switching languages so no one could communicate with one another in the same language because he realized that 
if he allowed that to continue, then the uh, the Earthlings would be controlling the planet and not the Anunnaki gods. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. Keep going. Okay. Well, okay. So now, <clears throat> now that I got you guys uh, on the same page with me here, I uh, was doing some re research years back, and I did a narrative. And it's on YouTube for anybody who wants to uh, to see it. And then I did later on research of it, but I'm referring to a book called The Smoky God. And The Smoky God is a narrative of an aged Norwegian sailor. Uh, his name is Olaf Jansen. And before he dies, he tells a story about how he found a passageway to the center of the earth and discovered a world peopled with giants. So I'll begin by making a well-known biblical statement. As above so below, and many of you listening will soon learn exactly what these words really mean. There is an inner world with ETs who have lived there for hundreds of thousands of years. The world as we know it is like a balcony with a terrace. Many of the myths, folklore, and legends are true. The earth is indeed hollow, and there are polar openings at the North and South Pole and as the reason why airplanes are, are forbidden to fly over it. In this segment, I will attempt to connect the dots. For those of you listening who are unfamiliar with The Smoky God, A Voyage in the World, it was written by author George Willis Emerson. The book can be found on YouTube.com. I myself have taken the time to narrate this amazing voyage taken by Norwegian sailor Jans Jansen and his son Olaf who claimed to have spent two years with the giant inhabitants of the inner world. So in the final days of Olaf Jansen's life, he contacts author Willis George Emerson and to write his amazing story about the inner earth. Olaf Jansen even supplied the author with uh, drawings, maps of the inner world and displaying its cities, example, Delphi and its rivers with names similar to our rivers on the outside, the Tigris, the Euphrates, uh, the Eden, and even the Garden of Eden. And so these are things that he supplied to the, the author just before he died. Olaf Jansen, a little about him, he was born in 1811. His father and mother were on a fishing trip when he was conceived in a small seafaring town in Uleburg on the eastern coast of Russia. Jans Jansen, his father, was born in Stockholm, Sweden. It was there in Sweden where young Olaf spent the early part of his life. In the year of 1825, young Olaf began accompanying his father Jans on fishing trips. Uh, our story takes an interesting twist when his fate would happen in the year 1829. Olaf and his father set sail from Stockholm, Sweden their final destination, the Lofoten Islands. They found themselves in unfamiliar waters, and they became fascinated by the northern lights as what is now referred to as the Aurora Borealis. So as they noticed this, these, these lights in the sky, they decided to continue northward. The frigid temperatures had changed, and they found themselves on an uncharted course that would later lead them into the inner earth. Jans Jansen's compass was now giving false readings. They were now heading south, which made navigating confusing because originally they were heading north. So it wasn't long before once they went into the opening of the inner earth that 
They were picked up by, if you can believe this, a cruise liner. And the cruise liner pulls up to their little sloop vessel. And to the surprise of the Jansons in their little sloop, they heard singing from this cruise liner. And it was probably one of those big ones that we have today that to go to the, the Caribbean. And uh, they heard was hundreds of people singing. So when the boat came over, they realized that the, the people who came to help them, to rescue them, were 12 feet in height. The captain of the cruise ship, after they picked him up, they found that he was even taller. He was two feet taller than the other men. So once on the cruise ship, the Jansons noticed that the women who were on the ship, they were at least 10 feet tall. So Jans Jansen, the father, he stood six, six foot three inches tall. And he only came up to the waist of his giants. So the captain asked curiously where they had come from. And the father found the giants friendly, sharing information with them about the outer world. So the Jansons were befriended by one of the men named Jules Galdia. And he took them to many of the cities and places of the inner world. The Jansons even had an audience with the king of the inner world. And they were told that they could stay there as long as they wanted inner world to learn, study, and just partake in their customs. But after two years living with the inhabitants of the inner world, the Jansons decided it was time to return to Sweden. Jans Jansen longed to see his wife, and he want, you know, they were homesick. So they prepared to make the return trip through the northern passageway where they had, had come through. But they were told by the, the king it would be impossible at this time of the year and the but they said the cruise liner would take them to the spot where they dropped them off if that's what they wanted to do. So the ship's captain took them to the same spot where they had picked them up. And they, took a, they had a mechanical conveyance where they dropped their little sloop into the water and they, they got back into their boat. Uh, they had things that they had gotten from, uh, from that civilization to bring back. They gave them gold. They gave them maps. They gave them a lot of artifacts so that way they could show you know, this is a fact is true. So they were excited about coming home with what they found. And plus they'd come back as rich men as well. But, but just as they were forewarned, returning back to the northern passageway, they found it was impossible because of the, the time of year. So after much consideration, Jans decided to tell his son, let's turn this sloop around and we'll head through the South Pole opening in Antarctica, which is what they did. The return trip for them was treacherous, and once reaching the South Pole, their sloop found itself in the Indian Ocean, but they were far from out of danger. Their little sloop was now surrounded by ice cubes, uh, icebergs that rocked their craft and capsized it. The ship had sunk, taking all the gold and all their possessions from them and back into the sea. Jans Jansen, the father, had drowned, and his body was never to be seen again. His son, Olaf, found himself on an iceberg that had risen out of the water, which probably saved his life. And he just stayed on the ice pack and just walked back and forth knowing that he had no provisions, he was cold, and he would probably die not, not long after if he, he didn't get rescued. <clears throat> but Olaf couldn't believe his eyes at that point because he noticed a whaling vessel that was fishing these waters. Once they spotted Olaf, the whaling ship came over and rescued him. After coming aboard the ship, he was greeted by the ship's captain. The man's name was Angus McPherson, and the ship's name was Arlington. That was commissioned out of Scotland. After telling the story to the captain about his father and his journey into the inner world, the captain ordered that he be confined and put under the doctor's care. So now Olaf realized that 
he couldn't repeat this experience anymore because uh, it might have him further incarcerated, you know, and he didn't want that. So the whole time on the Arlington, he had to keep his mouth uh, shut about where he really was. Four years later, in 1835, he had returned to Sweden and found that his mother had died. He was, he was able to get back his house and prove, you know, like, this is my house, all well, my house back. So upon telling his story to his uncle Gustav, who was a, about the giants and uh, about his voyage, he asked his uncle, who was of considerable wealth, to fund the expedition. So Gustav said, okay, well, let me take you to meet with high elected officials in our government and tell them about this venture. Shortly thereafter, papers were signed and Olaf was taken away to prison where he spent the next 20 years of his life locked away. So here it is. He spends 20 years in his life incarcerated all because he talked about what he had seen. At the age of 51, Olaf Jansen was let out of prison in the year of 1862 on the date of October the 17th. Olaf was now a free man, but all of his friends and family were long gone. His uncle Gustav was now dead. Olaf decided it was time to resume his life. He went back to work for a man named Jans Hansen and his first commercial fish, fishing voyage, he was returned to a place he was familiar with, the Lofton Islands. So Olaf then spent the next five years working for others and then after that, he got a fishing boat of his own and for the next 22 years, he worked for himself. Finally, in 1889, he sold his boats and moved to the United States, taking up residence in Chicago, Illinois. Olaf Jansen lived in Chicago for 12 years before deciding he wanted to retire in California. So he went to California in 1901 and moved to the City of Angels. But in 1908, when he was 95 years old, near his deathbed, he decided to contact the author, George Willis Emerson, to be able to relay this amazing story that I share with you now. So as luck would have it, I was contacted by a fellow hollow earth researcher and his name was Chris Baird. And he asked me if I would research the life of Olaf Jansen, being that I did the narration on it. So not long after I listened to my YouTube video on it that I had narrated years earlier, just to reacquaint myself with all the pertinent information. And I was able to find through my searches a Chicago, Illinois voter registration card for Olaf Jansen and his address listed at 304 Stephenson Street. I also found Olaf's United States naturalization records. There was also a listing for Olaf Jansen in the 1908 telephone directory in Los Angeles with his address given as 331 West 45th Street in the Los Angeles Business District. My final piece of the puzzle, which clinched it for me, is I started to look for the Arlington's vessel's ship captain, Angus McPherson. And I was able to find a record for Captain Angus McPherson. The record was I found Angus McPherson on the 1841 Scotland census. At the time, he was 45 years old, and he was born in 1796 in Inverness, Scotland, and he was on the 1841 Scotland census, and he was listed as a merchant seaman. So for more on this research, people can go to sindonisays.com, and once on my site in the video tab, you can watch the Smoky God and my research with the Smoky God reveal. So this for me was the clincher that there is a hollow earth. There is proof that someone actually did go there, 
And there was a ship captain who saved this man's life. So that way I can go on the radio here tonight and share this with the viewers that there is something happening at the poles. And that's why they don't fly over them. The, 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 the strongest currents are in the, near Greenland and the deepest waters are there and they don't want people going there. And in the South Pole, you've got off limits where 13 nations, I believe, have signed an agreement that no one could, could uh, go on that country and claim land there and build there any, 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 any countries there because it's forbidden. So here we are, we're kept off you know, both of the poles. Why? You see videos now, I see, they're showing the aurora borealis and uh, the northern and the southern lights coming out of the poles and people should wake up to the fact that what is this light coming from where is it emanating from and one thing people can look up you've got the story of eric the red who uh about three three hundred four hundred years ago took his people from greenland uh 30 uh, 30 days north of where greenland was to the land of milk and honey well, 400 years later, when people from his country went there to Greenland, there was no, nothing to be found of Eric the Red and his people. They just simply vanished and disappeared. The Eskimos said that they went to the land of milk and honey. Now, one of the things a couple of years back, this is just food for thought for people to think about, but I suggested that the Siberian auk, which migrates from Siberia to the South Pole every year, Somebody should put a tracking device on it and a camera to monitor it. Not long after I said that, the Siberian hawk was put on a, uh, a protective list and some other birds that I mentioned and animals I mentioned were put on this protective list because they knew that I was right, that these animals were migrating north and not south like we are told that they do. So here it is. If this is correct, a lot of the animals and the birds, and now they don't know what happened to where they went because, because of the conditions changing on the outside of the earth, they've now gone back inside of the earth. And in Siberia, you've got icebergs where some of the mammals have been coming out and they find them frozen in the ice sheets. And then when they unthaw the ice, they find out that these mammals still have undigested food in their bellies, which suggests that they died while, you know, very recently so here are things that that they're trying to cover up and it's wrong that we as as a nation don't see you know that we are being you know uh, lied to and we were not being told the truth and pretty soon NASA's photos from the space stations won't be available to us either so they're doing a good job now to try to stop the flow of information and to stop the Google Earth the uh, the imagery or to expunge it out so we don't see it or change it so that way they can mask it so that way they can keep this thing secret for for a long time to come. So basically what I'm sharing with you now is that there is an inner earth and a hollow earth and that there are these Nephilim, these giants, these stories uh, are not stories. You ask the Native American people where they went to after the flood, before the flood, and they talk about the ant people taking them into the inner earth and then returning them to the surface when everything was, was clear to come out. So there are many, many stories about this all over the world, and everybody can't be wrong about their flood stories. Everybody has one, and 
I'm here to tell you that if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So where I am right now with this is that my belief is that the truth shall set us all free. But for those of you listening, do the, do your own research, you know, and, and, and see, where the, see where things come out for, for you and see if, if any things I've said dovetail what you've been thinking or contradict what you've been taught. Because most of all, what I've learned in school has been a lie. You know, I used to be very interested in um, Telos in the community below Mount Shasta, where the Lemurians um, escaped because they knew that Lemuria was going to be, you know, disintegrated. Um, actually, Lemuria fell in three different times, but um, 12,000 Lemurians were able to get into uh, Mount Shasta and start a biosphere a community there. And um, the, uh, the research that I've done talks about that smoky sun. Right. And I think it was, I don't know if it's a huge crystal or what kind of lighting source it was. But um, yeah, there's, in fact, their rooms are made of um, a transparent crystal. But it, at night, uh, when you want privacy, it, it becomes non-transparent, you know. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, if you really do the research, there's lots of information about what the hollow earth is like, how the civilization um, conducts itself. They have a king and queen. Um, they have actually a huge uh, church that seats 10,000 people, but they don't pray to the quote God that we know of. It's more of a universal kind of uh, figure. And in um, Telos, they have seven, seven different layers where um, what the civilization will have, you know, their housing. And then down below might be a whole park area. And they've saved some of the animals like the pterodactyls and the, uh, the tigers, saber-toothed tigers and the mammoths. They, they uh, have tamed them over the years so that they don't, they're all vegetarian. And so um, they have a whole level of where the animals and trees are and then you know they have schooling and um it's just interesting to read all the books about telos because you get an idea of you know it's real it's really there well there. and there's lots thing, of cities in, in the garden network you, one thing i can tell you being you brought that up i will share some of your thunder here uh many of you out there might know her diane robbins and she uh is someone who writes books about Telos. She's a channeler. Uh, I think Adama is one of the people that the channels uh, through her. And I, I've done some narrations with her. I stay at her home and I uh, got, got to spend some time with her and to learn of who she was as a person. And so at that point, you get an idea whether somebody's telling you the truth or someone's a bald-faced liar or you know just trying to profit from uh, sharing this, this unbelievable information, let's just say. And I came to learn that Diane was uh, definitely gifted with uh, sharing this information as being a conduit to uh, the Telosians, but that the, uh, the Greys were afflicting her with uh, arthritic-type conditions in her body, making it where she had a hard time just walking, coming out to go to the store or to visiting with friends and everything. And she said to me one day, she said, uh, Help me, and she cried. And then I, like, I held her, and I said, "I'm here to help you." 
And I said, what would you like me to do? She says, I just want you to hear my story. And, and I did. And then finally, I said, well, you need to put this out. And I said, let's do some narrations together in her home. You know, I sat down and uh, we did a couple of her books. We put it out there on YouTube for her. And we became friends after that. And I realized that here was a woman because she told her truth about what was going on underneath Mount Shasta that she now had to suffer, you know, the, the consequences of going public about what was really going on there. And as I started to research the legend of J.C. Brown now, because now I'm out there, this is the last part of my segment, which you perfect timing there, Jen. <laughs> so I want to thank you for that. So while I'm out on California there, researching the legend here and I'm meeting Diane, I'm saying, wait a minute, this, there's more to my legend of J.C. Brown than just these giants that he, he unearthed there in this tunnel that led on the, uh, 11 miles underneath the mountain that had round houses and little cities and uh, had giants six and a half to 10 feet do- tall and hieroglyphics. And they had, you know, ancient wood day. I'm saying, now I learn that there's a million and a half people that are living about a mile and a half below the mountain. And you could see on the mountain, a lot of times it looks like a chimney where like smoke is coming out. You, what, where's the smoke coming from in the middle of the day? So you actually see it's venting, you know, uh, the heat because heat, heat rises, as we all know. And I'm looking up, and I go, wait a minute, you know, this looks like, a, you know, the, the heat of, of compression of something and it's got to go somewhere and here it is, you know, releasing at the top of the mountain. And I realized that Diane was right about these people in the mountain and many people uh, in town would say that these Telosians from time to time would be seen, seen other, other on the mountain or coming into town and trading, you know, uh, for, for goods in the stores or whatever. And they knew that, you know, they weren't, you know, living in the, in the town. They weren't hippy dippies. You know, they were people that were dressed far differently than most of us would dress. So these are some of the things I learned up there. And also, too, you had, when I was up there, you had the, um, the man Brad Sage, who uh, brought me up there, who had seen on the, the Mount Shasta, Shasta Springs Resort property, which now is owned by the St. Germain Foundation, he was happened upon by a man with a white robe seven feet tall and said, you had just found the back door to Telos. So the man invited my friend Brad Sage and his daughter into the, uh, the opening there, and Brad and his daughter said, thank you, but no thank you. And as they walked away, they turned around. This man just mysteriously was gone as quickly as he came, and they had no idea what happened to him. But they, they never forgot that story. So once I, I was sent that story in New York, because I had belonged to a hollow earth group, at that point, I said, well, I said, my brother's out of the hospital. My mom's here to you know, take care of him. I got a home attendant. I'm going to California. I got I to gotta see what this is about. And I did. And when I went out there, I was able to convince the elders of the St. Germain Foundation when I was lecturing at the College of the Siskiyous that my reasoning for seeing this unusual rock basalt foundation was that I believed I had been there in a previous embodiment as the man of the legend. And under that, those conditions, I said, well, we'll let you come see it. So Diane Robbins was with me on that occasion where we did both go. 
and actually get to see what Brad Sage had said that he saw with the Lemurian coming out of that entrance. So I can tell you now, based on what I learned and what I've seen, I know that there is a telos. There are people that have seen these telosians. And I myself can tell you that I had a lot of problems in Shasta with people trying to blame me for uh, digging a hole that was like 50 feet deep and 18 feet wide. They were trying to get me to trespass on property so they can arrest me. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I didn't do anything. Why, why are they making this big deal about me all because I'm trying to rediscover who I was in a previous lifetime? Now, in my search for my, for my former self, I was able to get photos of the man of the legend who looked exactly like me. I got a handwriting sample, and when I wrote his handwriting signature down, Next to, next to my signature, I caught, his name was John Benjamin Body, and right below it, okay, I looked at it one time, and I said, I'm not going to look at this, turned the paper over, and I wrote John Benjamin Body on the opposite side of the paper, turned it around, I showed the librarian, I said, does this look like this? She goes, oh my God, that's exact. I said, thank you. And I knew. So I had photos, I went and I was in a studio in Michigan, and I said, you know, I'd like to have myself morphed into this photo that I had. So what we did was, we took a photo and we colorized it to make it look more modern. And then my editor had me stand on the wall in the same exact angle as John Benjamin did in his photo a hundred years earlier. And then my guy just took me and he just morphed me right in to the old photo, and Jennifer, Max, Vanessa, Nicole, Russ, it lined up perfectly. And there was no shadow of a doubt that that was not me. I then got photos of the life of the man, the John Benjamin body, showing him to be in Mexico for 25 years, pictures of him and his wife when he was married, Lord Cowdrey of the mining company. And I realized I, unbeknownst to me, learned how to speak Spanish, and I'm not even Spanish. I like soccer, and I'm an American, and I was following English soccer to come to find out. I was doing everything that John was doing in a previous lifetime. He liked, he built the railroads in Mexico. I like going on trains. When I go to California, I'm on the train. And I said, wait a minute, this all is deja vu, like Yogi Berra would say, all over again. And I realized that we are reincarnated beings, and, and my, this segment is to tell people that we, are all, we have all been here before, we are all connected, and some of us remember, and I'm, I'm one of the few who remembers, I've had many embodiments, but this last one was one that I can actually say, I have photos, I have handwriting samples from border crossings, and there are pictures. I even found uh, the, uh, the bank in the Radio Texas Bank, where J.C. Brown claimed to have photos in the bank and artifacts from his find up in Mount Shasta. So they challenged him and said, Well, let's see them, J.B. So he never produced them, and on the morning of June 19th, and 1934, he mysteriously disappears. So through my research, I hire a private investigator and I find out why. J.C. Brown, or alias J.B. Body, chose Stockton, California to tell his unbelievable tale to the editor of the Stockton Record. 
And what I found out was his wife was named Mary Hammer. And Mary Hammer's relatives lived at 1825 on North San Joaquin Street. The meetings were held at 1784 San Joaquin Street. So he was holding meetings for six weeks right down the street from where he was staying with his relatives. But nobody knew that he was not J.C. Brown. You know, they, that's what they thought he was. But he was really John Benjamin Body, And he told people that if they knew who he was, they would probably kidnap him because he was worth $40 million. So when I'm reading, I said, wait a minute, I have to find a man who was older in age, worth $40 million in 1904, worked for the Lord Cowdrake Mining Company all of his life as a ge geologist and engineer, and, and going through the border crossings of Laredo, Texas, to leave his money in the Laredo, Texas National Bank, which is now the BBH Bank. So when I had the private investigator look this up, I found out that the money, the vault, there was still an account there in that bank under the, it was opened by Job Hammer, which was his father-in-law and his, 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 his brother-in-law. Thurston also had a signatory to go to that bank and his brother Alfred and also another relative had the, the rights to go to that bank to, uh, to go check out these artifacts. But today, the relatives who live uh, at 1825 North San Joaquin Street, Stephen and Robert, both now have the signatories to that account. So they are hiding information from the rest of the world. Now, what's in that vault? I don't know. So I tried to contact them, you know, to uh, by uh, certified mail. They wouldn't. They wouldn't respond to it. So maybe I'll try now to uh, to contact them, uh, you know, uh, you know, casually, whatever, to say, hey, you know what? It's time you guys tell the truth. So after going public with all this. Mike Fitzgerald, the uh, editor, uh, actually the columnist for the Stockton Record newspaper, sent me uh, information about you know the actual articles that were printed in 1934 about this, this story. Thereafter, when I shared my findings with him, he finally gave me the credit that I had been waiting for eight or nine years for, saying uh, the mystery of J.C. Brown has now been solved. So I solved the legend as to who the man was of the legend. But one thing I have not solved is what's in that vault. So it's my hope, because I'm writing a book about this, that somebody listening may know these individuals and say, come on, Mr. Hammer, Stephen, Robert, you know, it's time you share with us. Stephen has come out with the information. It's, already, it's public record. He's been given the credit for solving one of California's 100-year-old legends. It's no longer a legend. It's no longer a mystery. We know that you have the valuables in this safe, in this Texas bank. Please open up the bank. You know, it's not like uh, Geraldo Rivera opened up Al Capone's vault, which was nothing was in it. I'm telling you that what I say is true, and we are being suppressed of this information. The reason why these articles, these things that J.C. Brown found stayed in that vault there in Texas because he would have had to go through customs with that information. He could have never got it across the border. So the, the U.S. Customs agents would have went through his things and they would have seen that he was bringing in artifacts from the United States and that would have been a crime. So that's one of the reasons why they chose to leave it there in Texas. So that way, at some point later down the road, they could figure out how they could remove it out of the country. And maybe they did some of it taking it north through uh, to, to Canada before bringing it back to England, 
which were some of it probably resides, but but a lot of it there is still in the vault there in uh, Laredo. So, what do you think is in the vault? I mean, what do you think um, he found? Was it jewels? Was it, um, you know, what do you think? Well, one of the things I know that he had, he had an old Kodak camera, one of the first Brownie Instamatic cameras, and he took photos of everything that he saw. So what, what you'd probably see is the roundhouses, the villages, the 27 skeletons ranging from six and a half to 10 feet tall, the shrines that were built there, the hieroglyphics, and the little city that was there. And he said that when he happened upon this, uh, this, this area, everything was thrown about as if somebody left in a hurry. So there were people living there at the time when he happened upon this, but he wasn't alone. My research had showed me that he had brought with him uh, Lord Cowdray of the mining company, who was really, his real name was Sir Wheatman Pearson. And when I learned that, I, I checked all the border crossings and Sir Wheatman Pearson had come through at least three times with, uh, John Benjamin Body through this border crossing. They also brought with them engineers from the Lord Cowdery Mining Company up to Mount Shasta to dig this thing out. So this was done over a number of times up to Shasta, and I tracked John Benjamin Body 13 times to Laredo, Texas border, up into the United States to come up to Mount Shasta. So this was he was up here on a regular basis, and when 30 years later, when he decided to go public with it in the uh, to the the editor of the Stockton Record, he told him that there were a number of times when he came up to in the United States where like he was almost killed and he was kidnapped and he was threatened. So they knew that he was going up there and uh, he had found something and the U.S. government did not want that information public. Rumor has that there were treaties signed uh, with uh, President Grover Cleveland with the Telosians underneath Mount Shasta a secret treaty that I guess if if we went to the New York Public Library or somewhere like the Washington Library, the main library, we might be able to dig it up uh, and uh, you won't be able to take it out. You have to make a, if you're able to, to take a picture of it or you'd, you'd have to write down what you got. But there is an actual treaty that was signed with these people, you know, from this underground civilization. So they want no part of the upper world because they know that we are barbaric in nature and the people are not going to change. I mean, you know, you just, you, you could say to someone you love them, but you have to demonstrate your love. And I think the human race has a, a long way to go before they demonstrate that they have compassionate, kind, caring, and sharing and want, want that for the rest uh, of the world. So Stefan, uh, can you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Uh, we're going into the break right now. We'll be right back in just a, uh, three to five minutes. We'll be right back. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Welcome to the Captain Max Steel Show. You're listening to Wolf Spirit Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Russ, for that applause. <laughs> I'm feeling a little better. Thanks to my wife, Nicole, and, and a lot of you uh, people out there that's in the uh, chat room. I'm not feeling very well today. I'm not going to give up. 
I'm going to continue on to fight with it. And I got to tell you something, those people are listening to me. I shouldn't be saying these words, but I need to. Every diabetic out there, all you diabetics are out there, they're going through the things that I go through, of pains in your hands, in your legs, your back, everything. Get a hold of the attorney call, so call love. S-O-K-O-L-O-V-E. Get a hold of him and tell him what we're going through. I'm, I'm going to say a few bad words, Vanessa. And, uh, and I apologize for that. I had a schedule. But you got to understand that they're, they're killing us slowly with these medicines they're giving us. And I have contacted a very important lawyer and we're going to go after the pharmaceutical companies. We're going to make them pay for what they have done to us. And I'm going to make sure of that. And I'm going to tell you the pharmaceutical companies out there that you may listen to. You have never met a guy like me before. You have never ran to a guy like me before. And I'm going to turn all my engines at full blast. And I'm going to, I'm going to be the warrior that I was once. I'm an ex 20 year old green brave special forces. And you have poisoned me to the end of this day. But tomorrow, I'm going to go after you. I'm going to go after the way you go after people, with lawyers. I'm going to have an army of lawyers. They're going to kick your ass so far up your ass that you're going to have to pay everything you have damaged in all of us. So all you diabetic people, get a whole lawyers, top-notch lawyers, and let's have an army and sue the hell out of these pharmaceutical companies. They're not curing us. They're poisoning us. And I'm one of those guys that's been poisoned. And I'm not going to allow you to push me anymore. I'm going to come after you. There's one thing that the, the Navy SEALs and, and the Specialists know. They know me, who I was. I was one crazy son of a bitch when I was a Green Beret. I didn't care if there were bullets shooting at me. Yeah, I got shot eight times. So what? I'm still alive and breathing. And I ain't going to let you kick me anymore down my belt. I'm going to push you right. I'm going to put a hot poker up your ass. And I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm coming for you. And I'm going, to put, I'm going to do it with a legal asset. I'm going to use attorneys like you guys, like have, like have high-class attorneys. Well, i got some high-class attorney too because I'm going to come after you. And I'm going to make you pay for you. I'm going to sue you for $10 billion. And you know what I'm going to do with the uh, – I'm going to tell the attorneys, 
They, they can have 50% of it. That way they can work stronger with against you. And, 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 the, and the day I see you in court, I'm gonna look it down your eyes and you're gonna see the pain you put in my body. And I'm gonna put it right back at you. And you're gonna pay for it. So help me God, so be it. That's all I got to say. Go ahead, I'm muting myself. Go ahead, Stephanie. I will just add to what you have to say. I, I'm sorry to hear that you're going through this, but I'm not surprised that they go after a warrior like you because they got to find a chink in your armor. But I will tell you this. And one of the things I've learned through my research is that a lot of these um, remedies that they give us are laced with morphine in them. So what I would do if I were you, I'd take all your pills to a chemist and have them analyze what the hell is in those prescriptions that you're taking. But if you find traces of morphine, you will show that they deliberately tried to poison you. And for that, you will get the money. Um, the attorneys I talked to today, they're going to, they want me to send, um, they're going to talk to me tomorrow. And uh, they suggested that too. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send them, uh, um, you know, uh, proof of what's in it. I mean, yeah, I'm, you send them. It has to be registered mail to make sure that nobody, you know, intercepts it. Or even if you can have it sent by courier or whatever, so nobody could be the man in the middle and uh, compromise what you're going to send them. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to do that, and uh, I want to apologize for the bad words I've said, but I just had to put it the way they used to listen to it. And I'm going to tell you another thing. Because I was getting ready to give up. I was going to die here in the last 30 minutes ago. Because I felt, like I felt dying. I knew I was going to die. And I felt it. And you know who got me back up? My wife, Nicole. She's a warrior. And I, she made me remember that I was a warrior too. And I'm still a warrior. And you ain't going to kick me down anymore. I'm going to come back and I'm going to face you right face and face in your eyes. And I'm going to hurt you so badly without even touching you. So I like to say, Max, with, to all the viewers, if we all send you a healing, loving light and to surround you with a, uh, a green light of protection to cleanse your body and clear you of all these maladies that you're, you're feeling tonight, and let you know that the creator God has a greater plan for you and you're not done yet. You got a lot yet to do and know that and Nicole is there because she's your soulmate and she's there to help you through these rough times. And, uh, it's, it's not what happens to us, my friend. It's how we deal with it. You are a warrior and you're a spiritual warrior. Just step into your power. And tonight you tell your truth and everybody here on, on the station will send the love and the support you need to get you through to the next level. So that way you are your, your hundred percent max steel self. The next time we hear your voice. Absolutely. I'm not going to give up. I'm not. I always been a warrior all my life and I ain't giving up because I am not going to give up. I'm not going to give up for myself and I'm not going to give, give up for my wife, Nicole. Because I love her and she loves me. 
and she is what keeps me going strong. I was about to give up a, a little while ago, but Nicole brought that warrior out of me again, and I feel like that again. So, you know what, pharmaceutical companies, I'm coming for you. <laughs> I'm going to put a hurt in you, in your pocket. And when we get enough people out there doing the same thing that I'm doing, we're going to bankrupt you, you son of a bitch. And I mean it. And that's all I got to say. Uh, before we continue, um, Stefan, we have somebody in our chat here that wanted to acknowledge his presence, that he's here to support you. Uh, his name's Chris. Oh, great. great. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Just wanted to let you know that. So if you want to Thank you. Yeah, Chris is yeah. a fellow Hollow Earth, Earth researcher and someone who uh, is one of my friends for a long time when he started following my work on the, the Smoky God and asked me to go back into the, the library and do the research to find out if, in fact, it was fact or fiction. And so I thank you for being on the line, my brother, and uh, realize that you know, the truth will set us all free. So as as a result of his tenacity to getting a hold of me, because it's very difficult for anyone to get a hold of me. I'm, I'm a very difficult person. I'm a very private person. I've, I've gone through a great deal of a number of years being a researcher, and I guess it goes with the territory. So in order for me to become friends with someone, I have to meet them either through a referral or I have to be comfortable with that individual before I'll, I'll you know, be a, forthcoming. So Chris is someone who I uh, I took under my wing and uh, is like my son. And I, I'm happy to say that if I had a son, it would be him. And uh, so he's he's a good fellow hollow earth researcher and someone who's a seeker of truth and understands the, uh, the confusing times that we're living in right now and uh, the uncertain conditions. And one thing I will say is we all need to realize that we're all connected and we are to raise the vibration of this planet. This is what this is about. This is these shows that Max is putting out. Max is taking the heat. He's getting uh, hit with all sorts of uh, different frequencies, rays or whatever, and through medication or through, through other exotic weaponry because they know that his message is being heard by many people around the world. And, once the message gets to the critical mass, these powers that be will have no control over us any longer. So I commend Max for taking on the warrior and realizing that it's not over until he says it's over. And I've had the same situation in my life. And I've told Chris or other people that we need to all stand strong and believe that one person can make a difference. I'm talking to Chris is in Colorado, some of you in California, some of you in, uh, in North Carolina where Max is, and the chat room is all over the world. And we all have something in common. We are all you know, children from the creator, whether it be the Anunnaki creator or coming from a different star system and being seated here by the Federation and, and have, coming here to experience on this planet. So what I say to everyone now is that we need to raise the bar. We need to be in our heart. We need to be heart smart. We need to forgive these people for what they do. They know not what they do. They do it for money. They do it for greed. They do it for power. And 
their time is over. Their time is short. You know, our time is at hand. And that's what we have to look at. The solution to all this, we know what the problems are that they create. We know what our reactions have been to it. And now we have to come up with viable solutions so that way we can send these people packing. So if anybody wants to comment on that, please do. Uh, I think we have any comments on that. Um, if you want to continue on with uh, what you were talking about before, that would be. Cooper. Okay, well, I was talking about the legend of J.C. Brown. So as a result All of right. my, research, my research there, I met Jen in California as I was making a movie about this, and I was snookered into uh, people trying to get me arrested for things that, you know, I, I didn't want to be bothered with. I realized that I was on to something about what was really going on in the uh, – underneath the mountain of Mount Shasta and come to learn there are two bases now, military bases on Mount Shasta that are being used for uh, genetic human testing, which is wrong, you know, to, to do testing against our will or to be abducted. There's people being abducted all over the country. And even now I hear that Native American women are being abducted like never before. And people who go to national parks are never to be seen again, them and their families. And where are these people being taken? Many of these national parks that most people don't know, I will tell you, are, all have uh, underground uh, rail systems or they have underground bases there where things are hidden. So the fact that it's a government land, people will never be aware of it, never, never know that there's a hollow earth entrance in that facility, in that national park. So this is how secrets have been kept. And what we have to understand that somebody on the inside is gonna say, you know, I gotta tell people what's really going on. I don't wanna take this to my death. I'm gonna die anyway. So I might as well just come, come clean and tell people what's really going on. But it just seems like these people are, are even afraid that after life, they'll bring them back and they'll reincarnate them and they'll fry them like an egg. And that's part of the problem is the, the reincarnation process. Because if you think about it, if we just look at the Civil War, for example, and I, I'm not that I'm ranting here, but I, mean, I got a point I want to make. More Americans were lost in the Civil War than any other war in our country's history. And then you think about, well, if it was so bad that all these people got killed, why haven't we learned a lesson from it that war is is no good. And I realized, well, what if this creator, Anunnaki God, created a reincarnative situation where we'd come, come back and they would put us in certain scenarios to do certain things over and over again. So, for example, if my family was in the Civil War, the next time around I reincarnate, guess what I would be? I would be a soldier again. And, and it's just a cycle that would keep repeating and repeating and repeating. So they wouldn't have to go out looking for new recruits because they know that every generation or every time there's so many people coming into the world, that they, they were their soldiers. Because they're coming back to do what the only thing they, they knew how to do is to kill people. So when you see people who go into these situations as, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be patriotic, they wonder, wait a minute, it's more to it than that. So we are all 
into this reincarnative process, good, bad, or indifferent. And, and, and some different religions, they talk about, you know, it's cause and effect. And, you know, uh, the deja vu, you'll come back. If, if you kill somebody in a previous embodiment, you come back in this embodiment, you have to feel what it's like to be either killed by somebody else or to be really hurt real bad. So if this is the karmic lessons that we are to learn, that we have to realize that we need to be in service to each other. Because if we're going to come back again, and this is what prison planet Earth is, we better figure out a way to opt out of it. Now, I know how to opt out of it, and I will share with you and all your listeners how that is attainable. And that's attainable by not having someone bury you into the ground. You must be cremated, you know, and you, your, your ashes put out to sea or, or thrown in the air, wherever in the atmosphere, and that will allow your, your, your essence, your soul essence, to go back to the universe, to, to the multiverse, and be able to incarnate somewhere else and not duplicate the process here on Earth. But as long as we decide that we are going to be part of this Anunnaki you know, recycle plan, and we're doomed to repeat it. So for those of you listening, you know, think about it. When it's time for you to make arrangements about your burial, you know, don't go in the ground. <laughs> Cremation is, is the answer to a reincarnation process because I see people and they keep going back and doing the same things. And I, I, I say to people, if you want something different, You've got to do something different. You know, you, you, you won't get different results if you keep doing the same thing. So my goal here tonight is to show a different side of Stephen Sindoni or Stephen Sindoni or whatever anybody wants to call me and understand that what's happened to me previously is going. I can't change what's happened to me yesterday. I can only change my perception of what I spoke about last week but I know who I am as a person. I know who I am as a man. I know who I am as a uh, someone who, who has integrity, someone who wants the right thing for humanity. And I can't let anyone change my philosophy and the way I feel about humanity. But humanity has to realize that they need to step up to the plate and take accountability for their own actions. It's not what you say or do. It's what you demonstrate. If you say you love someone, you better show them. You better hug that child of yours. You better tell that child you love them. You, you better help them with their homework. You don't be selfish because you're not promised tomorrow. It's only the here and now that you got. So in the here and now, I'm doing my thing because I know that what I'm doing now is what I'm good at. I'm good at taking the floor and, and, and commanding an audience all over the world. This is what I do because when you find what it is you like to do, you'll never work another day in your life. So right now, this for me is being fellowshipping with everybody out there because I am now in service to humanity. Yes, I know I was talking about legends and mysteries and all that thing, but right now I'm in service because we all have to come together, as the Beatles said, or John Lennon said, all we need is love. And we have to figure out a way to stop these guys from wanting to push the button and making it difficult for the rest of us. Because people are beautiful until proven otherwise. And I think all of us have been naive believing 
that everybody else should be given a pass. No, they shouldn't be given a pass. They should be accountable for what they do. And some of the things you spoke about earlier, about some of these people, what they're guilty of, you know, I'm not in judgment of anyone. I'll just say that you've got to do the right thing because everybody, you know, is, is going to be affected by your actions, whether you realize it or not. What happens in China affects what happens in America and vice versa. This is a small world and we're all connected. And when you realize just how connected we are, you realize that you can pick up the phone and be talking to somebody 4,000, 5,000 miles away, or they can have the same thought as you in mercurial speed, in God's speed, because we do all have the same wants. We all do have the same needs and we all want to care for our families and to have the best we can for ourselves in our lifetime. So I wish everyone out there, you know, that they follow their dreams and they pursue their passions and live their life to the fullest because we have no guarantee that we'll be here tomorrow. So today, live it up. Party like it's 1999, but enjoy yourself in the process. Stephen, you talked about um, past lives having a bearing on our current lives. And I happen to know that um, you were Alexander the Great in another lifetime. How does that play out in your lifetime now? How, what bearing does it have? Well, how, how it played out initially was when I first discovered that I felt an attach, attachment to it. I wrote a short story about it called Know Thyself, The Hero's Journey. And as I'm writing this story, I was living in Florida at the time, and I realized that I was having a pain on my left side, and it was like a cell memory. So I went to see a doctor, and he said, you had, look like a little tumor there, but he said, this looks like it's embedded there. So I realized, I remembered that it was, uh, I was wounded in a battle, and it was like a scar tissue that was now exposing itself, showing that, you know, it was a wound that I was inflicted by. Another thing that when I realized who I was was that wine, if I drank a little bit of wine, I got very, very sick or I almost died a couple of times. This is like, why is the wine affecting me? Then I realized that Alexander was poisoned. You know, that's how he died at 33 years old. So I realized that I had been poisoned in that lifetime. And I realized I had an affinity to like Afghanistan or uh, in that part of the world. And I could flip a globe and close my eyes and put my finger on the globe and stop it and stop it to places where I had uh, traveled while I was uh, Alexander uh, in that lifetime. So that was one of the ways that I kind of learned that I, I knew what I knew. And I started to realize that I cared for humanity. And the things that Alexander did were things that I am talking about today for everyone to unify. And uh, he, he created mass marriages where he had large groups of people intermarry one another. And, and he got cultures to intertwine where there wasn't a separateness as it once was before. So he was very responsible for the unity that we now see, see around the world. So one of the things was he didn't conquer to divide. He conquered to get everybody on the same page. So that was one of the things that I benefited from, from that existence. Another thing I benefited from was that the fact that it just resonates with me when, when it was said, you know, when I asked him about why he didn't compete, compete in the Olympic Games, and he said, only if my opponents were kings. And I could see myself saying that because I'm not, not going to go and run a race if I'm, I'm not running against the top guys in the world. So I realized that 
I had that competitive nature that he had. And one of the things I realized about this was that he, his father, Philip II, Philip uh, and him had this love-hate relationship. And the reason why they had this love-hate relationship, because Philip was on campaign. And when he came back from campaign, he found out his, his wife, Olympia, was pregnant having a boy, a son. And when the boy was born, he said, I didn't father that child. <laughs> no, that's not my kid. So he was resentful that Olympia had a child, which was not his son. And it was come to, to, to learn that uh, the father of the child was really Marduk, son of uh, Enki, who dressed himself up as a, uh, a female maiden to get into Olympia's tent. And he got busy with her, and Alexander was the son of a god. So later on, some of the, uh, the Egyptian, the Siwa uh, high priest, told Alexander, yes, there's truth to that story. You are the son of a god. So Alexander had gone to different battles, and there were times when he was going against unsurmountable odds. And Marduk had sent like either flying helicopters over or different like UFO craft to help Alexander win some of these battles that he had no business winning. So he was getting divine help from uh, one of the co-creators of our planet, Marduk. So later on, after 13 years of Alexander being around the world, and just before he got poisoned, he came back to, uh, to Babylon. When he came back, he found that he wanted to, to meet Marduk because he realized who his father really was. He was the son of a god. He always talked about being the reincarnation of uh, one of uh, another Greek god. Now, his name will come to me in a second. And he knew that he had been reincarnated before as a warrior. So he, he had been chosen to come back over and over again as a leader and a warrior. But he knew that his father was Marduk now. So when he came back to pay tribute to him, he found out that Marduk had just died and they had his him in his coffin uh, near the spaceport where they had there and it was filled with oils to try to keep him alive or whatever. So I think after Alexander had seen, you know, the body of his, his father, he realized that, you know, he was connected, you know, to, to the gods, I'll call them at the time, but Marduk was, was the reason why he became the greatest conqueror that the world has ever known. But this was all based on, uh, the Anunnaki's uh, dominance over us and controlling the chess pieces on the board of life. That makes sense. It does. And the other thing that makes sense is uh, the Alexandria Library, uh, collecting all the knowledge. Uh, that's something that you like to do is research and look for the truth and make videos and write books and, you know, Another similarity there. Yeah, you know, a lot of things that he did, I do now, and it's just amazing. I spend a lot of time, if you ask me, let's go to a movie or go to the library, I'll say, you go to a movie, I'll be at the library. I mean, that's just been my life, and I, I am, you know, uh, exhilarated when I go into a library of learning, and because there's so much knowledge there, and for anybody who doesn't do that, spend the time, learn about, you know, you know, your history, whether it be your own genealogy or 
or just the, 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 the world. Learn about cooking, pottery, learn something because, you know, the, the day is wasted when you don't learn anything. That's the only way you're going to grow. So the Alexander aspect of me has told me now that the reason why I cannot be beaten is because I'm divinely led. I am being helped by the creator of all and the angelic realm who want me to share what I'm sharing with you tonight. And I'm, I'm glad you've drawn this out of me because I don't tell people of that because they don't understand. But for me to write a book about that or to know about that or to share who I was, and this is why when I spoke to you earlier about that book, The Anunnaki, God's No More, they didn't want me to get that book because in that book it talked about Marduk and his relationship with Olympia and Alexander's arrival as a god. And this is what they didn't want me to connect with to know of my divinity. But I already knew it. I said, this is funny because this is what they're trying to you know, suppress from me. But here it is just validation for what I already know. But when I was in Shasta, there were people that met me that saw you know, my, uh, my aura and saw that I was you know, uh, somebody from antiquity and knew that I had great things to do here. And there were people that wanted to stop me. And I realized one of the things that I had to share with people, and tonight was a good night to do it, was about the reincarnation aspect of what we all need to know before we cross over. Because this is it. If we don't master this lifetime, we will come back to do it again. You get a failing grade, and they'll send you back into another body. And, you know, woe is you because you come back in and you don't remember. And they will take all those memories from you. And now you got to say, okay, well, how long is it going to take me to remember all those things? Or will you ever regain that consciousness that you, you had, but they'll try to suppress it in that next embodiment? So I talk to people about, you know, levels of consciousness, you know, 3D, you know, the fifth dimension or even the ninth dimension where it happens where there's other parallel universes happening at the same time. So this conversation I'm having with you can be being had on different universes play out different ways so it's just a matter of okay what channel am i on right now on this 3d planet called earth so right now i'm on the truth frequency because i'm sharing with people what they what they know in their hearts what they intuitively feel but they don't listen to the guidance that comes in their ears for example i get mine i'm auditory i hear things in my ear and i get uh video i get pictures and images and then i get the validation because i ask who it is or whatever and then they'll tell me who the person is that's giving me what they're giving me and i ask if it's my highest good give me a yes give me a no and then i i'm able to discern whether it's good good entities or whatever but when somebody crosses over a family member or somebody i know or somebody wants me to share a story about what happened in their life i get stuff and there's people around me and they'll tell you Who'd you have just come in? And I'll tell them who just came in. They well, that's explosive. I said, yeah, but I don't know if I want to share that information. So I'm connected with some people on regular antenna, some people are on uh, satellite. I'm on a universal dish. So what I'm sharing tonight is worldwide. It's going out universal. It may be even multi-universe because I believe right now the, the other realms are happy that I'm sharing that there is a federation out there. There is a, a global concern, a worldwide concern that the people on earth need to step up their game. And if they understand where they've been, 
maybe that'll help them elevate themselves so that way they don't have to punish themselves going forward. I've had other embodiments and, you know, mentioning uh, when I was in Shasta, I met a man by the name of Kenneth McNeil. And before he, he crossed over, he told me that we were brothers in a past life in Lemuria. So I was a shaman in Lemuria. So I understand why I am into crystals why I'm into meditation uh, and why the, the, the J.C. Brown story about Lemuria and what the gods have to say is because I've been there. I've done that. I understand. I've walked the walk. I've talked the talk. And I, and I know that right now what I'm coming out with and telling people is going to be beneficial to them because they'll say, you know, I always had a feeling. Well, I would sit there. I would. Go to bed at night, Jen, and I would say, okay, what do I need to know for tomorrow? I put up the question to my higher guidance, and next morning I get up, and before I finish my first cup of tea, I take a blank piece of paper or a three-by-five card, and I just end up automatically writing whatever it is I get. And within the first hour of every waking day, I'm given a download. And this is the way it's been my whole life that I know that creator is working through all of us. So we have to use that creative instrument that we're getting because we are, you know, we are the conduit for the, for the guidance from above. And only, uh, only we can draw that out. And it, it, this is a planet of choice. This is a free will planet. But I can tell everyone listening that if you don't ask for the guidance and if you don't ask for the assistance, you won't get the help. So you've got to ask, if things are too hard in your life, if things are unbearable, then you've got to reach out and ask for the help because the universe will send you the help. They'll send you that life preserver, but if you're not paying attention, you're going to drown. And then the universe will say, you know, I, you know, I heard you, I heard you summoned me for help. I sent you the life preserver, but you weren't looking. Well, pay attention is what I'm telling everyone right now because the signs are all out there. If you pass the street corner and it looks familiar, you might have been there before. If you meet a person who you feel an instant connection to and, and, and you just don't know why, maybe there is a true connection. You might meet your soulmate that way, not realizing that there she is or there he is and you were at the right place at the right time. No rhyme or reason for it, but the universe knows what's best for you and you have to put your best foot forward out every day regardless of how you're feeling. You got to trick yourself. I feel better. I know you may feel lousy, like Mac, the way Max feels right now, but he's got to trick himself. you got to say, I am healthy, wealthy, and wise. Why? Because the mind believes whatever you tell it. So if you tell the schmuck in your mind, oh, by the way, ego, take a walk. You can't live here today. You can't make me negative. You can't make me have any bad thoughts about people. You can't have me condescending. You can't have me think that my poop don't stink, you know, because there's three kinds of people. There's people who talk about people. There's people who talk about events. And there's people who talk about ideas. And I challenge everyone to check themselves when they're talking about other people or when they're talking about events. Talk about ideas and you'll draw people's attention, admiration, and they will follow you. And you'll have more friends than you know what to do with because they'll realize that you are elevating the human race. So that's what my goal is tonight, is to share with people that we're all connected. And 
my hope is that everyone prospers. They get the, the valuable insight that I've had to share with people tonight and know that I love everyone who's listening to my voice tonight. And for those who have challenges or issues, just know that sunshine always follows rain because when you know that everything turns out right, I expect Max to feel better tomorrow. And this is what he's got to expect that tomorrow he wakes up feeling a lot better than he did today. We all get older and you know, we all have pains, aches or whatever, but we got to like kick it up into high gear because that's what the challenges are in this 3D. You know, this, this gravitational force and pull on us makes us start to feel things that, well, gee, I didn't feel that 20 years ago. Well, you feel it now, so you're going to have to deal with it. So it might be that you have to, you know, do less, you know, do less strenuous exercise or not take on as much physicality as you once did before because you can't climb Mount Everest. Just like I have a difficulty right now climbing Mount Shasta. <laughs> I'd rather drive up to the top than climb up to the top. I mean, if you give me a choice, hey, let's drive. But the point of the matter I'm bringing up is it's all about choices. It's, you know, you, you can you can have paradise in Brooklyn. You know, it's your choice. Or you can have, you know, the other side of it. You can have gloom and doom. You know, what do you want to feed yourself? You want to feed yourself a gourmet meal or do you want to feed yourself Alpo in a can? That's up to you. I would rather believe that, you know, we are, you know, what we eat. You know, we are some of what you ingest is what you eat. So if you put the right things in your body, the right chemicals, the right nutrients, you'll be fit as a fiddle. And the body will reward you by showing you that you are that beautiful being that you've been working towards. But if you don't feel that you are you know, worthy of it. And that's the whole thing right now. These Anunnaki have created a situation where they make us all feel that we're unworthy, that we're not you know, worthy to be loved, not worthy to be rich, not worthy to be successful, not worthy to be, have high self-esteem. They want us to feel that what happened in our childhood is going to affect us in our old age. And I'm here to tell you, break, break that mold, shatter that image, get rid of it because if you don't, you will play that bad movie over and over again. So that's what I've learned from the reincarnation process. There's all these embodiments that I've had, and some of them I share with you has taught me that I'm not coming back here on prison planet ever again to redo what I've done at least 22 times before. Okay, so Stefan, what if um, some of us don't remember our past lives, you know. Um, I read a book about, uh, which was written by a nurse who helped one of the survivors of the Roswell crash, you know, one of the ETs. She wrote about, um, you know, being in the presence of this being and they had a mind-to-mind -mind kind of communication. And one of the things this being said was that there were three machines planted around the earth that would wipe out your memory okay it's it's a it just zaps your memory so you don't remember your past lives when you are reborn so um some of us don't remember and um you know i've had hypnosis i've had different readings because i want to know uh, the past lives but um it, it's taken an effort you know what i'm saying Oh, I agree. I read that book that you're talking about. I think maybe you turned me on to that book. Yeah, it was a very good read. Yeah. Book, yeah. But what you, I came to learn from 
that book is that this book had no idea that she was an ET, an extraterrestrial, and that she was part of that, that alliance, you know, that, uh, that was here from the Roswell crash. And so, you know, it's an interesting thing that these beings who come from other worlds come here to experience what it's like to live in a 3D environment. And this is like uh, an experimental planet where they come here to, to, to be, you know, uh, to be what we are, you know, and have freedom of choices. So this might be just a, a testing ground for all of us to come to, but being locked in and not remembering is a very difficult thing. And, and, and my answer to that is a lot of meditation, uh, find out who your guides are, uh, clear your energy with sage, incense, and get yourself in a devotional mental attitude where you, you're grateful, have an attitude of gratitude just for getting up each day, uh, for the food that you eat, be thankful, always thank, you know, be thankful for whatever you have and start asking for the guidance and, and, and ask for them to reveal themselves, pick up a pen and paper, start to write every morning, you know, so who's coming in today? And just let it come in. Maybe someone will come in. Maybe they won't. But at least you're opening the door. Or what should I read today? And you'll be guided. Or where should I go today? And you start listening. And you'd be surprised what you're getting. There's many times where I've avoided being in an accident. Or I was told moments before, you know, don't cross the street. And all of a sudden, the car would come high speed trying to kill me. And they would guide me and tell yeah, me. Yeah, I was saying... I was saved by my uh, guardian angel back in 1990. Um, I was going to be in a movie. I used to act as an extra in movies and stuff. And I had my own television show in um, Sacramento area for years. But anyway, I was go going to get some, a costume and um, I'm traveling on a road that's kind of windy in the, in the country. And um, I had been warned two weeks before I heard this voice in my right ear saying, you're going to be in a car accident. So um, when I went to get the costume for my girlfriend, um, I stopped off to get an iced tea at Taco Bell. And just as I'm reaching for the t uh, tea, I remembered, oh my God, I'm going to be in an accident. I better put my seatbelts on. Because back then, you know, I didn't wear a seatbelt. It wasn't required. But I put both on the shoulder and the seatbelt. And I'm traveling down this road, and here comes a car straddling the middle line, coming straight at me, playing chicken. I don't know what. So I, I turned my car really fast to the right. There was a whole row of trees that I could have smashed into and died, but I didn't. My car uh, clipped the road, went on the opposite side, and, and rolled over, landed on the tires. You know, the car was kind of totaled. <laughs> I didn't go to the movie, obviously, which was going to be in San Francisco. And, um, but I, I always am thankful because I heard that voice. That was my angel telling me, you know, warning me. So, yeah, I believe in the angelic presence. And I know that um, they are always there to help you. You just have to ask. I had a similar story where I was driving back from Atlantic City and, uh, I was very tired and I was driving back and I had family in the car and I fell asleep at the wheel and uh, everybody else in the car was asleep. And what happened was something said, get up, get up. And as I opened my eyes, I hit the speed bumps on the left-hand side. The car had went from the right lane all the way over to the, the fast lane and the speed bumps kind of woke me up. Next thing I know, I'm, I don't know if it was me or who it was, turned the wheel 
and I did a 360, and I looked in my rear view, and there's all cars like screeching to a halt to stop from rear-ending me, and now the car ends up on the right side of the road on the shoulder, and I pull it to a dead stop. So the people in my car woke up, and they said, what happened? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I said, I think we've been saved by the creator, and I told them what, what just happened. And I had said about five minutes before that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it back home from here. It was like an hour ride to where, where I lived from South Jersey to like the shore area. And I just felt like I'm fading, I'm fading, I'm fading. But something, you know, told me, you know, don't fall asleep. So I kept fighting it. But when I finally got into that where I, I started to, to nod off, I heard something say to me, get up, get up. And it like, it just pushed me where I was forced to like hear that speed bump and hit that wheel instinctively to turn it to save me and my family in the car. And I realized that it wasn't my doing. It was divinely orchestrated that I live another day and it wasn't my day to die, I guess. Max, you were talking the other day on um, your about, uh, I think it was an angelic presence that pulled bullets out of you. You want to share that with us? Yeah, um, it, it happened um, when I was in Iraq um, on a mission and I had been shot three times. I had three bullets in me. And uh, a presence showed up and um, I guess he didn't want me to die for whatever reason it was. So, uh, two of them were pulled out, and uh, the third one I couldn't get to, but I think that angel that showed up kind of helped pull the third one out, and I was able to get it out. And uh, I, I did get all three were out of my body. So um, – it, it was an incredible feeling. It, it was an incredible experience that I had. And because I was laying on the on the desert there with three bullets holding me and three bullets in me. And the only thing I could think is just I had to live. I had to live. I had my mission was not over on Earth. Besides that mission I was in was not part of any mission. What's more important is the mission that I have here on Earth to come to finish it, and I almost gave up today. And if it wasn't for my wife Nicole get me going again, yeah. I would have died right here where I'm sitting at doing this show. Uh, but uh, if it, if it wasn't for my wife Nicole, I would have just let it go. Oh, I want to say something about. Uh, when y'all, when your people are dying and let's say the person have died already, uh, please don't go to the light and don't go to the tunnel. If you go there, you're going to be recycled back to this planet. You're going to need to go and say, I want to go back to my planet that, and that's it. And that's the final word. And you just do it. They can't stop you if, if you say those words. Believe me, you'll be able to go back home where you belong. You don't need to come here anymore. Besides, by the time you come next time, it's going to be a beautiful planet with, with no evil or no nothing in it. They're just plain good people. And that's what's going to happen. 
That's all for me. Oh, um, we got about uh, how many minutes we got for the show? Uh, six minutes. Okay. Um, is there any uh, questions out there in the uh, Nicole? Nope. No questions. Okay. Uh, well, that was very uh, kind of strange today with no questions. But anyway, I, I just want to say something, Stefan. You know, you're very courageous in what you do. Coming here, uh, uh, two, uh, three segments of six of two hours each. You. This is the third show you've done with us. A total of six hours. And I, I really truly want to thank you. And and um, I had a vision the other day about you. And I think it's, uh, maybe I shouldn't say it on the air, but it's time to move on. You got to go. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I got you. I got you. Okay. I just want you to, to be safe. The truth sets you free. I think everything I've shared a couple of weeks ago have cleared the energy, cleared the way. I got rid of a lot of baggage, and I, I'm not the individual I was for 20 years. I am now, I am now a young man again. And if you see me, you'll see I look 30 years younger because all that weight is gone, and I, I feel like I am free now because I don't carry the karma, I don't carry the baggage that I carry, and I don't carry resentment or, or anger or animosity to any of these individuals who wanted to stop me each each fork in the road. It's too late, you can't stop me. You know, I already did what I needed to do. I said what I had to say. I'm a, I'm a creative person and I'm always gonna be creative and I'm always gonna be a thinker and play chess with the best and beat the best. So that's just who I am. And you know, no one's gonna outthink me because I always know what the answer to the question is. So. They better forget that, you know, just let me be who I need to be. But I'd like to thank you for having me on the program tonight. And I decided I, I would take you up on what I needed to do and, and create another Proton Mail account. So I did. And I know it's <laughs> And uh, I did it again. And uh, so for anyone out there who wants to get a hold of me, and I don't normally do this. Jen knows this. I'm very private because of all the stuff I had going on. But I feel like a change is coming. So my email address would be B is in boy, S is in Sam, U-R-E at protonmail.com. That's be sure at protonmail.com. And one of my three representatives will get back to you. And the representatives are me, myself or I, they'll be in contact with whoever wants information from me, if, whether it be uh, information of what I do, ideas for, for future videos, if someone wants me for a TV special, if someone wants me for a documentary, if someone wants me to make an appearance, or if somebody wants to make a donation. I accept donations. I, I don't accept anything from the state government, nor will I ever collect any. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, I'm going to be free of all that because I don't want anything that has anything to do with the government. I feel like if I touch it, my hands get toxic. So don't want it, don't need it. And even the birds and bees are taken care of. But for anyone who wants to support my efforts for the future, if they like to see what I've done, if they want to continue to see what I'm doing, then 
be more than welcome to donations going down the road. If you'd like to have me on the show again, Max, you know, give me a ring and ding a ding and we'll do it again. <laughs> okay, my friend Seven. Uh, we got 60 seconds of the show. I'm going to take over now. I want to thank everyone for being on the show tonight. Um, uh, the Wolfpack and everybody in the world that's listening. I really want to truly thank you. I want to thank Jennifer for doing all the hosting today, and I wasn't able to, and I really thank you for that. Uh, I want to thank Russ, my producer, Vanessa, my moderator, and you all, my friend, and my wife, Nicole, for being here with me. And I'm so happy that I'm back to kick some more ass. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much. Uh, and I say good night for now.